Okay, so frigate toads, what are they? And are they the best or are they the worst? Are toads the unsung underdogs? Are they warty friends yet to be made? You'll find out. But first... listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. It's good to talk with you all again, and I hope everyone remains safe and healthy. And I am recording this intro earlier than usual in the week, because when the episode drops, I will be on the road in Alabama and out of touch for a few days. So welcome to episode 17. And on today's show, I talk with Priya Nanjapa, and I'm happy to get her in the lineup at last. I had recorded a conversation with Priya back in February of 2020, which was done over Skype, but there were so many cutouts and blips in the recording that I just I couldn't salvage it. So that's my first and last attempt at using Skype for interviews, by the way. So we tried again in August, and uh, doggone it, we had even more problems. The internet was having a bad day, and we kept losing our connection. But In the end, I was able to stitch everything together, and here we are. So thank you, Priya, for hanging in there and seeing this through. So I've known Priya for a few years now, and it didn't take me long to become a fan of hers and to appreciate the work she does. Now, you all know it takes a lot of effort to protect and conserve wildlife and wildlife habitat in general, and even more so for herps and other, uh, shall we say, less than charismatic organisms. Of course, they're very charismatic to us, but there are many ways that all of us can help with this great work, of course, but we also need people with very specialized talents who can deal with things like politics and politicians and folks who can do long-term planning and project management. We need people who can work to organize and strategize and build coalitions and consensus, and I admire Priya's abilities to do these things from within the system and After getting to know her a bit, I think a lot more about all the effort that happens behind the scenes, and often it happens without a lot of fanfare or even public knowledge about it. I was also happy to talk to Priya about some potential legislation that I think is incredibly important, and that is the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which I hope many of you already are aware of, and I think Priya was the perfect person to provide some details and some depth for this act, which, if it passes, could have a powerful impact on the flora and fauna across the United States. Recovering is the key word in the title. We're not just talking about another small plug for a severely leaky bucket. This is a bipartisan bill, which is currently working through the House, and it is sponsored by both Republicans and Democrats, which is a very good sign. And I will have some links in the show notes with more info about this act. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for a link to Priya's toad episode, epitode, epitode, on the Ologies podcast, which is hosted by Allie Ward. It's the Buffology episode, and let me tell you, folks, when you make it on the Ologies podcast, you have hit the big time. So let's get to my conversation with Priya Nanjapa. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the show. And today I'm talking with Priya Nanjapa. Welcome to the show again, Priya. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I should mention that you and I talked way back in, I think, January. I think it was the end of January or maybe I February. And uh, yeah, we recorded a show. And uh, unfortunately, the I was using Skype at the time and uh it turns out that our internet uh, connections weren't very good, and we weren't able to pull off a successful recording. Uh, it, it sounded pretty bad in spots. So uh, so I asked you to come back on the show and talk to me again. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that. I'm excited to talk with yeah. you again. Yeah, and so uh, for those of you who don't know Priya, she is currently uh, sitting on the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission in the Wildlife and Environment Wildlife and Environment seat. Is that correct? Correct. Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. Yes. Cons- Conservation Commission. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is sort of a new position for you, but can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and uh, what that what that job entails? Yeah. So. <laughs> it's a it's a longer story that if anybody's interested, I can get into another time. But um, I didn't really know about this commission other than it existed up until about a couple months ago. Um, I had been involved in some other work that was through uh, the Colorado DNR, and I heard about this opportunity with the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, and actually I was sort of recruited for this role to put my name in the ring, you know, amongst others, um, for this wildlife and environment seat. And they were interested in me in in part because I had, you know, beyond the typical fish and game experience and, and more of a non-game experience. And, you know, my first reaction was, Oh, okay. Oil and gas. You know, I, I didn't really, immediately kind of see all the connections. But once I read the law that created this commission, um, which was just amended in 2019, and the amendments are significant, and they specifically change the mission from fostering oil and gas development to regulating it. And it also creates this professional commission where there are particular seats, you know, that have particular expertise. And so, as you noted, I'm, I'm sitting now in the wildlife and environment seat. And, um, and our role is to ensure that whatever oil and gas development is occurring is prioritizing public health, safety, welfare, the environment, and wildlife resources. And so I, okay. I am on the commission with, with four other people. Um, and we are now creating the rules not creating, I should say, but um, reviewing and deliberating and potentially, you know, making some changes. Um, and then we'll pass the rules that will regulate the various activities in related to oil and gas development. There's a bunch of different pieces of the, um, the regulatory process that are coming up here in the next several months. I see. So it sounds like important work. Obviously, oil and gas exploration and uh extraction are going to continue uh, regardless of how we feel about that. So it's important to make sure that it's done responsibly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that was what really, you know, kind of put it over the edge for me to look into this opportunity was knowing that, you know, as you said, you know, this is, this is kind of development is going to continue happening for some time. And even though there's other types of energy development that's that's being explored, you know, even renewable energy can have some issues related to wildlife. And so I saw this as an opportunity to have, you know, to be at the table, to have a say, to have a little bit of a broader perspective on different types of wildlife species, you know, obviously herps um, being a major one that I'll be thinking about and ensuring that what is being proposed with oil and gas development, um, that we can set rules in such a way that the activities can happen um, with minimal harm to um, wildlife, wildlife corridors, you know, the water and the and the air, et cetera, around where they live. Okay, cool. Thanks for that kind of overview. Uh, so you just kind of started on this job recently. Very recently, yeah, just at the at the, the beginning of July. Okay, just started getting your feet underneath you for this then. Yeah, I've been reading a lot, uh, trying to understand, you know, kind of what's coming up in terms of what's being proposed for rules. We have the, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission has a, a number of employees um, that are working in different areas related to oil and gas development, and they've been the ones who have drafted the rules that are supposed to implement this law. And they've been, you know, talking to various stakeholders, both, you know, on the oil and gas side, the environment, wildlife, air quality, public health side, and um, have now drafted those rules. And so now we're, we're in the process of kind of 
getting familiar with them enough to start having some discussions about them later this this year. Yeah, it's it's been a very different experience, but at the same time, which I know we'll probably get into more, you know, I kind of ended up more in a policy related role um even though I'm a, I'm a biologist and I'm finding it's it's really it's a, it's something I missed, you know. So even though in the last couple of years I was um doing other things, more nonprofit management, you know, I've I've really missed the policy work. So I'm excited about it. And uh you're still defending wildlife. You're still Mm-hmm. You're still in there batting for the herbs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's nice being able to, you know, use my sort of wildlife science background and obviously herpetological background and be able to think about these issues and, you know, bring that into the discussion and or just ensure that, you know, those are the those issues are being considered. Well, let's let's kind of bring it around to where you come from. Uh, you started out. You went to school to be a biologist, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I kind of knew I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. I've always been just interested in general in wildlife. I wasn't a specific sort of herp fanatic, but I definitely remember seeing, you know, turtles and garter snakes in my yard growing up um, in Iowa and also toads, um, which are my favorite. And, uh, (laughs) you know, so I was always just kind of interested and curious about those things and but also, you know, watched the birds and the bunnies and, you know, uh, anything else, you know, that would come through the yard or the, there was this cool little riparian area near my house growing up that I would often go and explore and, you know, definitely saw some beavers and muskrats and, you know, just other wildlife in general that, and deer. Um, and so I just always kind of appreciated that. I was interested in science, interested in biology, but I didn't want to be a lab rat. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to work outside and my dad is an engineer, uh, retired now, but, um, so he was trying to figure out, well, okay, I don't understand this biology, you know, want to be outside kind of thing. Uh, not that he didn't like being outside. I definitely have to create or credit him for some of my interest in, in nature and wildlife and, and just like beautiful places. When we were kids, we used to take these cross country drives just to go see, you know, various national parks and places like that. Cause that was something he did when he immigrated here, um, in the sixties and, um, you know, just but, wanted but to like share a, that. Like a good dad, he was concerned for your future. Exactly. So, <laughs> so he was trying to get me into environmental engineering, thinking that that would be a way to sort of get this sort of outdoor desire that I have and into something a little bit more secure and something where he might be able to help me out somehow. Um, but my first year and a half in undergrad, taking classes like calc-based physics and um, various types of, you know, other sort of pre-engineering courses that, and analytical chemistry and, you know, things like that. I was just like, okay, this is just not for me. And so my, I filled my electives with things like ecology and botany and um, the particular school I started at didn't really have wildlife, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I ended up transferring to Iowa State University and there's a much more robust kind of wildlife and fisheries program there. And um, so most of my, even though I was a biology major, m- most of my electives were in the animal ecology and wildlife um, related coursework. And then I also had a minor in environmental science. Um, and then, you know, just took all sorts of odd jobs where I could find them, field jobs. Um, I volunteered for a wildlife refuge where I was doing more bird counts, but also kind of gave them a little bit of an inventory of the frogs out there. This was in North Dakota and, you know, had some other sort of basic jobs like that. But then I ended up going to grad school and that's where I really focused on primarily amphibians at that time and got my master's degree. Um, Again, the degree is specifically biology, but the emphasis was in conservation biology and amphibian ecology. And you worked for Mike Lanou, correct? Yes, he was my master's advisor. That's correct. Your advisor, I should say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you did some field work and uh, mm-hmm. got to play with cool frogs and toads and, and yeah. study their environment. So um, Exactly. And the way that that came about was I took a field, uh, a set of field courses that was with this field lab that was in northwest Iowa um, in the Okaboji area and um, took a course that he taught, that Mike Lanou taught. Uh, and He's an ISU alum as well, which is partly how he ended up, you know, teaching at this lab. And anyway, of course, you know, as it was a 
vertebrate ecology and evolution course, but of course he was interested in herps. So we saw a lot of herps. And so that was really cool. You know, we saw all sorts of critters out there and that got me really interested. It was also around the time where in Minnesota, there were um, malformed frogs that were starting to be observed. Um, And so he was kind of involved in that. And, you know, he was just pretty well networked with the herp community. Um, So definitely a lot of the connections that I ended up, you know, having and, and building later on in my career started with um, the connections through him. And so here you are with a master's, a newly minted master's, mm-hmm. and uh, you're ready to go out in the world and do some things. And uh, I think it's safe to say that there's 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 some turning points in here uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that led you from playing with frogs in the mud to something else. Yeah. Yeah. So... I got my master's. I knew I didn't want to get a doctorate right away, but I was still thinking about it. And um, I was debating on, you know, what to do next, but I, I wanted to pay some bills. And so I started applying for some jobs. I also applied to some PhD programs, but I, um, I applied for jobs and I ended up getting a job with USGS, um, US Geological Survey, with their Amphibian Research and Monitoring Initiative. And this was in the first year or so after it had started. It officially, I think, came to be in 99. And this was 2001, I think, when I moved out to Maryland to the Patuxent Wildlife Research Center and started um, working there. So I was still playing in the mud with frogs. And we got to do some other cool work with box turtles. And, you know, anytime we'd ever encounter any snakes in our work, you know, we always recorded those observations and, and took measurements, et cetera. And so, um, you know, I got to, you know, kind of continue building those field skills. And I really loved all of that. And I even liked some of the write-ups, you know, um, when we would write up the research, but I didn't specifically like the sort of nitty gritty of research. (laughs) And so I kind of knew that was the thing that was not really for me, but I wasn't really sure what was for me. And I really wasn't sure what else was out there. Um, But as I was there in Maryland working, I got involved through our group in the Amphibian Research and Monitoring Initiative, got involved with Partners in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation in the Northeast region and started going to their meetings. And as we were um, attending those meetings, you know, I got more involved and I would volunteer to work on certain projects and things like that. And people, you know, would ask me to help out with different things. And then this position became available in Park um, for a national state agency's coordinator. And so it's interesting I, how many times Park comes up in my interviews. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's great it, to hear. It, yeah. And so uh, this one in particular, but uh, uh, please continue. I, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I interrupt. No, no worries. I please do interrupt as much as you as you want to to both to shut me up and to also <laughs> uh, ask any questions about what I'm talking about. But yeah, so Park kind of became this thing that was really interesting to me. And then when I heard about this coordination, coordination position, I thought, well, this is cool because I could still be involved with herps, but I can work with people and I don't have to be stuck in any sort of lab or, you know, restricted to uh, academic um, environment or, you know, anything like that. And, and it's, it's not, you know, specifically research, but I can still, I was interested in the research, the findings, you know, that people were doing. And I, I wanted to learn about those things, but I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> um, and so gotcha. I, yeah. So I, anyway, when that job first got advertised, it was based in Arizona because it was supposed to be a position with the association of fish and wildlife agencies, which is a coordinating entity of all the 50 States. And, uh, with members from the provincial and territorial governments in, in Canada as well. But the association or AFWA, they were not able to bring on the position right away. Um, so Arizona Game and Fish was kind of leading the charge and they said, well, we'll just contract the position to start with. And so they started and they advertised and I didn't want to move to Phoenix. So I just kind of let that one pass by and a person got hired for that position and they were in it for a f- few months. And I you know, talk to them when they came out to the Northeast Park meeting and, um, you know, was just kind of interested in the position and sounded really cool. And, and, you know, just in general, the types of things that they were thinking about. But then they kind of um, somewhat abruptly left just maybe six or eight months into the position. And so the position became open again. And this time when they advertised, they said it could be a, a remote station position. So I applied again and or not again, I, I applied this time. 
Um, and I ended up getting the job and I worked for Arizona Game and Fish while sitting in Maryland <laughs> um, <laughs> as a national coordinator for PARC, for Partners so in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation. Your, your paychecks came from... The Arizona, Arizona Game, Game and Fish. Fish. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. And then that, that's eventually. How, that's how we do these days, right? That's exactly that's the world yeah. we live in. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And so it worked out well. And then I, I was in the D.C. area, which is where uh, AFWA is. And so that sort of worked out. And then I you know, went into the offices a couple times and got to meet some of the people there. And eventually they were able to bring it on as a full position there. And so in total, I was that national state agencies coordinator for 13 years, um, but at AFL wow. for 10. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. We first met uh, at a, at the, I think the national park meeting or the, the big mm -hmm. park meeting in Virginia a yes, number of years ago. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Norfolk. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, I was there uh, part of the HerpMapper team. We went there to uh, because our, our developer got a, a pretty cool award. Yes. And mm -hmm. uh, so it was it was interesting to I mean, I kind of knew about park and the activities of of park uh, and the various mm -hmm. chapters. But it was kind of cool to go to the, the big meeting and sit with um, people from all over the country that were involved in the process. And uh, yeah. so I, I, I sponged some stuff up while I was there and kind of. <laughs> uh, got a better feel for what the organization was doing. And it, mm -hmm. I started to get an idea that there, this is uh, much more important than I thought it was at first. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and yeah, so that was our national steering committee meeting, which we have each March or the park has each March, I should say. And um, and that year it was in Norfolk. And and yeah, that was great that you were able to come. I I was also, you know, somewhat familiar with Herp Mapper from work in the past. And I knew you know, Chris Smith from Herp Mapper from Midwest Park. And there had been a couple of different related things, projects we were talking about in park that I know your name had come up a couple of times, um, you know, that, oh, you should really talk to Mike Pingleton, you know? And so, and I, I also then was starting to learn about, you know, sort of all the, the field Herper stuff that was happening out there and the sort of historical connections with, with Herp Mapper. And, and um, yeah, so it was just really great to to have all all of you out there as well and be able to learn more. And and it seems like that's kind of when you got a little bit more engaged with some of the park stuff too, which is cool. Yeah, I've but been yeah. to a number of meetings. I've been to the Southwest Park meeting a couple times and Co Park uh, this mm -hmm. February and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Midwest Park meetings. And I'm looking forward mm -hmm. to continuing that uh, as we go if we ever go yeah. <laughs> if we ever meet again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, well, in the future, but uh, yeah, exactly. Whenever, whenever we're actually in in person again, but yeah, so it was, a, it was such a cool experience because I got to travel all around the country for these different meetings, all these different regional groups of park, and almost everywhere there was a field trip um, associated with the meeting. And whenever I could, which was most of the time, especially before I had my daughter, I stayed, you know, beyond the meeting and, and would go herping. Um, and so I got to see some really cool critters, you know, all over the country, um, just with these connections through park. And, um, so I just really feel, you know, it was such an honor to be in that position and to have those opportunities. And, um, but also what was cool. And I think maybe as you're kind of alluding to, you know, I think park does the people who know about park kind of get this. And, and there's a lot of people that still don't really know about park, but, the beauty of park is that it's it's a collaborative effort of people in government, you know, at federal and state levels, people in academia, people in nonprofits, and just people who just like herps, you know, um, and, uh, and and other sort of you know industry and corporate um, groups as well. And in some cases, you know, the reasons they're involved are different. Um, maybe there's a particular objective or maybe they want to, you know, keep a species off the endangered species list because of the concern of, of the regulations and other restrictions that they may deal with. And then on the other side, you know, you've got the folks who are the conservationists who also want to keep the animals off the endangered species list, but just because, for, you know, they want them around. Reasons. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, so that was really cool. And I, I would say there's some you know, I can kind of draw from that experience, especially to where I am now with the, the Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, because it's a similar idea where you've got, you know, people who are specifically interested in oil and gas development, people who are specifically interested in, you know, the environment, air quality, public health, whatever, um, and wildlife. And you 
have to figure out where the sort of opportunities are for mutual benefit and common ground and, you know, or where you can come to some agreements of how things can be done in a way that causes the least harm. And um, that was a lot of my experience in park. And I didn't really figure this out until much later on. But, you know, a lot of that skill set was more portable than I realized, you know, I, yeah, anyway, I, I, yeah. I since had a few more opportunities that, um, that are pretty cool. And I think definitely relate back to that role in part. Well, I've been thinking about this a little bit and, you know, uh, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of sexy stuff going on in biology. If that's your thing, that's great. But there, there's, this is the non-sexy part of biology, Uh-oh. right? Or in conservation there? biology or the, or whatever you want to call it. So somebody has to be good at this stuff. And, you know, fortunately, we have people who are willing to step up and do the work. Yeah, you know, and uh, the good at it part, I I, I don't know, you know, how uh, how much I can say there. But I, I definitely learned as I went, um, you know, as a biologist, I didn't really have much experience with policy. And I've, I've talked to a few other colleagues about how it really could be useful for folks in any sort of really any sort of field, but to, you know, just learn sort of the basics of policy and how things happen. And, um, but yeah, you know, like a few years after my master's and that I was in this position with park, I went to some conference that was primarily academics. And so there were a few folks there that I'd met who are kind of in my cohort that now were in PhD programs. And, um, and I was, you know, telling them and was sort of excited about these different things that I was working on and how they were more, you know, talking about the sort of policy pieces related to them. And th- they kind of just looked at me like I was just so strange. You know, they were just like, huh, well, I guess somebody has to do that, you know. And, uh, um, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, and I, I think that's the kind of thing. I think what I've realized, though, is that it really was a cool opportunity. I think I... I can really say that there are some things that I was involved in and everything that I did, you know, and included a ton of other people. Um, so it definitely is not something that I would personally take credit for, but, the, but together, like we move the needle on certain things. And I think that was really cool to be able to see. And what it really solidified for me to understand is that if there's something that's needed that you're thinking to yourself, why isn't, such and such agency doing this or why isn't this happening and by and large it's because there's not a law or a regulation or a rule or whatever that is that creates a requirement for that thing to be done and that was kind of my big realization is that you know if you're not sort of identifying where those gaps are and what those needs are and a lot of times you know people already know what the needs are but they don't know how to make the change and there's a lot of, you know, petitions and other efforts that are out there, you know, just sort of like pleading for, you know, certain things to change. And in some cases, you know, that will get attention. But if you don't have somebody that's sort of on the inside that can talk to the people who can actually make those changes happen, those changes aren't as likely to happen. And so I see. Um, anyway, yeah, so I think that was the thing that I realized. And, and that's, I enjoyed that work, you know, and I, I didn't, didn't know, you know, going into it, how much I would. And, and, uh, and then again, leaving it for a short bit there. Um, because then after my time at AFWA, I, um, and park, I became the director of operations at conservation science partners, which is a nonprofit that primarily operates in the Western U S and, um, does have a couple of hurt projects, but, you know, it was kind of more broadly wildlife oriented and, um, more research oriented. And so, I was just kind of overseeing and helping to kind of run the organization. But there were a lot of parallels, again, in, in what I was doing with respect to Park, especially kind of helping to basically run an organization. But I also realized that I missed actually learning the science and applying it towards, you know, these kinds of policy needs. And so that's kind of what led me to where I am now. Ah, so this this new job is a chance to get back to that. Back to policy. Yeah. One of the things that that Park did does that is really cool is they have these habitat management guidelines, mm-hmm. which is a book basically mm-hmm. that helps land managers, landowners to uh, th- uh, help them think about the herps when they manage for other species. I think I have that correct. Yeah. Uh, so if you're putting in, uh, if you're dealing with a 
a wetland with or a pond. You're putting in a lake or a pond with for fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is uh, make sure you consider putting in ha- uh, edge habitat, wetland habitat, mm-hmm. uh, places where the fish can't go, so that you can encourage you know places for amphibians to breed and mm-hmm. you know snakes to feed on them and so on and so forth. So it, it sort of um, piggybacks the the again the sexy species management with uh, some some ways to help other types of wildlife as well, herps, basically. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, and in some cases, it's not even the, the person using that book might not even care about the wildlife at all. Um, they just want to be able to harvest the trees or, you know, plant their farm or whatever it might be. But we can help them do, do it in such a way that they are minimizing the harm, you know, to um, especially the herps in what we're talking about. But in a lot of what we would message along with that was the benefit that some of those same practices would, would create for other wildlife. And, and again, you know, as you mentioned before, you know, that was one of the things with, with my role with AFWA in particular and, and through park was realizing that most of the wildlife community and especially those making decisions are based in large game management and, and that experience and, and et cetera. And they aren't thinking about these other critters and probably only because of the migratory bird treaty act. And this is again, where I was saying before about where if you don't have a law or some sort of legal authority that, that kind of creates a requirement, then there's, you know, certain things don't happen. And, and with that, with that law coming into play, you know, now a lot more agencies, you know, are very heavily involved in, in migratory bird management. And even though state fish and wildlife agencies are, you know, responsible for managing amphibians and reptiles, they don't always think about them in terms of, you know, their priorities um, for, for a bunch of different reasons. But having that ability to kind of raise the profile of amphibians and reptiles in these different circles, you know, they're primarily sort of centering their thinking on big game um, or fish you know, was such a great opportunity and such a challenge that I kind of enjoyed, you know, trying to figure out like what would be the angles to help them think about these, these other critters. Um, and that's really what the habitat management guidelines were getting at as well, you know, was, was thinking like, you might have these other priorities, but here are some ways that you can, you can think about these critters, or at least ensure that you're not harming them and, and creating further problems that you'll have to deal with in some other way in the future. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it's hard to get good data for how how much impact you these management books had, but I, I'm sure you've heard back from some folks who've used them uh, and you know helped to uh, maintain or or create habitat for for herps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think um, our partners with the Natural Resource Conservation Service, which has these extension offices, you know, all over the rural parts of America, and work primarily with folks, you know, with farms and ranches, they said that they, they got a lot of benefit out of those books with the folks that they were working with, you know, to try to help them. And there, there's still some plans, I think, within Park now to help increase incentives, you know, for people to do more good. And, and there's some specific programs that now exist that Park had some hand in. Um, some of it was just kind of coming about from, from other um, interests and needs with particular endangered herp species. But you know, there's some there's some really cool programs out there that have created these incentives now for for those types of landowners, you know, like active production landowners um, to do good things for herps. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, speaking of doing good things for herps, I'm going to segue into um, a, a bit of legislation that's been bouncing around for a while mm-hmm. called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Yes. And uh, I, I bring this up because we we just had something else become law earlier this week, and that is the Great American Outdoor Act, which takes excise taxes from offshore oil drilling mm-hmm. and then puts it into public land conservation and acquisition, which is a pretty cool thing. So there's uh, a, it's not money out of the taxpayer's pocket. It's money that comes from. Uh, the energy, the energy industry, and that money goes into uh, protecting habitat uh, and purchasing habitat, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And so folks know about that a little bit, or some folks know about that. 
Mm-hmm. But there's also this this uh, other thing that that's the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, mm-hmm. which has been bouncing around <clears throat> in Congress for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. And uh, you talk you you know a little bit about this uh, legislation, and it's it's not gone anywhere. To some extent, it's gone to through some portion of Congress, but it it's sort of sitting there right now, and perhaps it'll get picked up again. But tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and and I'll admit that I'm I'm not up on the very recent version, but from what I understand, it's it's still fairly similar. Basically, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act is a way to provide more regular funding that would benefit a variety of species, but especially non-game species. And so, you know, what we found is a hundred years ago or, or so, deer and a lot of large game species, even Canada geese were in major decline. And once there was this particular investment that, you know, that occurred and ultimately resulted in the uh, Pittman-Robertson and Dingle-Johnson acts that created a way to to fund the conservation of of those large, you know, game and, and fish species. Those populations really rebounded, and we can see that, you know, very clearly now with with many of those species. And you can see that, you know, certain other species are continuing to rebound, and that that has a lot to do with that funding. We didn't have something similar for non-game species, um, and the only closest analog is, is, as I was talking about before, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, where songbirds, you know, get some additional attention. Um, but we didn't have a, a, a clear funding source for the non-game species. There was the state, state tribal and state and tribal wildlife grant um, program that was established around 2000, and is based on congressional appropriation. So this means that in every um, funding, you know, cycle every year within the Department of Interior's appropriations bill, um, Congress decides how much will get put in, you know, for that particular purpose for the state and tribal wildlife grants. That's not a big sum of money, though, right? Exactly. It's, yeah. In the beginning, there was some a, money. Yeah, exactly. In the beginning, there was a decent chunk of, of change in there. Lately, it's more like. 50 million, 60 million or something that gets appropriated. But this is divided up among all 50 states for all of these different wildlife species. And if you think about it, you know, like, so on average, a larger state with a greater population like California or something like that gets a gets more like $2 million. A, a smaller state or one that has less population, so like, you know, Rhode Island or even Wyoming, gets, you know, maybe a half a million dollars. Um, and it, you know, fluctuates every year. And so for planning purposes for these agencies, that's really tricky, you know, to know what you're going to get the next year, because it's all dependent on what Congress decides. So Recovering America's Wildlife Act would create a steady source of funds. Initially, I think it was 1.3 billion is what they were talking about billion with a B. So already, you know, like orders of magnitude, an order of magnitude greater than had been appropriated appropriated, you know, through Congress for the state and tribal wildlife um, grants. But well, now, now we're talking real money. Now we're talking real money. And so, yeah. So in some cases, like some of those same states that I was just talking about, like California would get, you know, upwards of $30 million potentially and, and Wyoming and, and Rhode Island, you know, would even would get like, you know, 20 million or something, you know, I, I don't know what the specific, there, there were a couple of different, you know, sort of calculators that were out there about, but again, you know, so like serious orders of magnitude, more funding um, if this gets passed. And so you mentioned that there's been some movement. It's been introduced in Congress um, the last couple of Congresses. So, you know, each time we have a, a, a midterm election or an, or an election like we have, you know, this year being a, an election year, um, when there's changes, you know, the Congress changes over. So basically every two years, so this was introduced in the House last year, I believe, in 2019. And there's been, I think, some action happening in, in the Senate, but I don't, it, it hasn't been passed yet. And now that we're so close to the election, it's probably not likely. But it is likely that because it keeps getting introduced, because there's such strong bipartisan support, it probably will get reintroduced in the next Congress. Um, and, you know, there'll be another push again to, you know, try to get Senate support. So well, be- because yeah. we they passed the Great American Outdoor Act, mm-hmm. that gives me hope that this that the Recovering America's Wildlife Act will have a good chance of passing as well, because it's 
Yeah. It, the funding is different, but it's the same goal. Yeah, I think overall, I mean, and those two things are very complementary. You know, they would they would work really well together because, like you said, with the Land and Water Conservation Fund that gets funded through the the Great Outdoors Act, there's the ability to acquire lands and, um, you know, to manage them for wildlife. There's, you know, the additional benefits of some of the needs for the national parks so that people can go and and be in places where they can appreciate, you know, uh, the wildlife and, and et cetera. And so the other thing about this particular, um, funding source, and as, as I was talking about the state and tribal wildlife grants is that a requirement of that funding source of state and tribal wildlife grants was that each state had to create a state wildlife action plan. And in that they identified their species of greatest conservation need. And that was, again, as I mentioned around 2000, it was around the time when there was some more attention, especially for amphibians. And then not too long into that, you know, time frame was when I got this, this job with park and with AFWA. And so the state agencies in particular, um, had identified every single state has some one or more species of, of herps on their species of greatest conservation need list. Um, which means that they can then spend that money from the state and tribal wildlife grants towards, those species. This, because it's such a greater amount of funding, if it gets passed, would allow for, you know, more money to be spent on those priority species, potentially the ability to, you know, bring on more staff to help determine what the status needs, status and needs are. It would just really just give a huge boost to all the conservation efforts that um, are already intended and and desired through what's been identified in these state wildlife action plans. So the only sort of hitch yeah. with all these funds is that they require matching funds. Um, but there's some cool things with this Recovering America's Wildlife Act that um, would broaden the the sources of matching funds um, to certain federal agencies that normally wouldn't you know wouldn't qualify under the state and tribal wildlife grants. And anyway, just creates a lot more so, opportunity. Yeah. Somebody's done a good job putting this together. And it also sounds like, you know, we're talking about not only more jobs for biologists and ecologists, but we're talking about more stable jobs because often employment is transitory and, you know, it depends on you've got funding for four years. And then what do you do? Exactly. So um, having a establishing uh, stable positions means a lot more work gets done. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, and also because we're throwing a lot more money at it, instead of states basically doing the best they can to, to maintain, well, like a California tiger salamander, for example, mm-hmm. they do the best they can to maintain the population. Uh, but this kind of money allows for, you know, uh, a much more expanded plan to maybe not just manage the species or keep it from blinking out, but also to, you know, expand habitats, re- recreate uh, places for it to live yep. and, and that sort of thing. So it gives just a lot more, uh, it just gives a lot more uh, opportunities to, to do a lot more for, you know, herps and, and for other species as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when the state and tribal wildlife grants fund was first developed, um, around that time, a lot of agencies began hiring or, you know, having like contract positions and other things available. But as the appropriations dwindled, um, some of those same same people who were the, you know, responsible for specifically herps um, had to take on other other species, you know, in their portfolio or their, you know, jobs had to change. Or in some cases, if they left, their job wasn't refilled. So I think at the high point, um, I had counted at one point, I think we had about a third of the states that had like a dedicated herpetologist on staff, um, which is still, you know, quite low and unfortunate um, because every single state has a bird biologist, you know, but now I think we might be down to like 20% or something like that. And it's, it's just because there's not the, you know, the funding um, to support that. Or we have a lot more agencies that just have, I mean, there's all, there's somebody in each agency that's responsible for herp management, but they may be also managing birds or bats or mollusks or, or whatever. So, um, they're, it's not their, their only priority. And this would definitely create that kind of opportunity. Um, again, where I, I think, I think it would be very likely that agencies would start hiring, you know, specific critter based positions. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it's group. just great mm-hmm. news. Uh, so for the folks listening out there, if you're not familiar with the Recovering America's Wildlife Act is, mm-hmm. is, I think, what it's called. But it gets called many different things. So it's something to look up and uh, and find out more about. And uh, and hopefully, uh, because it's such, it's a chunk of money that it's big enough that, that Congress pays attention mm-hmm. to it. Because it's it's not, you know, when we're talking about giving a state a million dollars, that's not much money right. for conservation. But yep. they, they pay more attention to serious money in $1.3 billion Mm-hmm. It's definitely serious money when we're talking about uh, wildlife conservation and things like that. So yeah, exactly. Uh, so I'm I'm really hoping that uh, over the next year or so, this this legislation gets pushed through. Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to just just note that the way this came about was that AFWA put together a blue ribbon panel on I think it was called Sustaining America's Diverse Wildlife or something like that. But the panel was a bunch of conservation leaders, you know, from various conservation organizations um, on the sort of, you know, more traditional wildlife side and like the outdoor recreation industry, but also um, just other sort of corporate uh, leaders. So from um, some of the uh, automotive industry or the oil and gas industry and, and other groups. And, you know, they're all having to deal with especially these these non-game species that are becoming listed or declining for you know a variety of reasons and um wanted to you know be involved in figuring out what the solution was and so it was through that panel that a a, a sort of a sub team was developed to help develop this legislation um so this really came out of an effort that was led through afwa and had a lot of partners involved as well and is is continuing to be you know one of their major priorities and so, so yeah, I think, as you said, you know, there was a there was a lot of thought put into how this was put together and what it needed to have in order to be effective, and um, how we could really jumpstart some of this conservation and, and keep these species populations healthy. Yeah, uh, and just just for reference's sake, the acronym AFWA is the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. So these are the folks on the ground in each individual state. Yes. Yeah. yeah. AFWA okay. is the, the sort of coordinating entity, but we work with every single state or AFWA works with every single state. Gotcha. And so they had, uh, they, yeah, there are definitely people in all of the states that are thinking about this, working on it, trying to help, you know, you know what they can with their their own partners, you know, to push this forward. But yeah, especially, you know, after we have the elections, um, it'd be a great time, or even as you're researching who you might be voting for, you know, looking at whether they co-sponsored this bill, whether they were, you know, have been supporters of, of state and tribal wildlife grants. As I mentioned, this is a very bi- bipartisan effort. You know, there's, there's, um, we've got both R's and D's, you know, that are co-sponsors on this, on this act in the house. And which is very encouraging, super encouraging. Yeah, you, you just really need that, you know, nowadays. And so you can you can look at if you go th- to congress.gov, um, that's one of the places There's a couple different other places. But you can if you just Google Recovering America's Wildlife Act uh, co-sponsors and just make sure you're looking at 2019, the 116th Congress from 2019 to 2020, then you'll find out the most recent you know set of co-sponsors and, and you have a, a good idea, you know, if they were involved and. Um, or, you know, potentially can ask if they're still going to be interested in this in the future or, yeah. you know, any other potential candidates. You know, that's something that you could do. Yeah. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. Uh, let's do a, uh, a 90 degree turn here <laughs> as we kind of not quite wind this down yet. But uh, mm-hmm. I want to talk for a moment about science Twitter. OK. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. When I say science Twitter, it, that is not an organization. It is not a, a thing. It is just the collection of people involved in science that are on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I got on Twitter a few years ago, I decided that because Twitter can be uh, really bad in some places. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like those the dark alley you don't want to go down to. Yep. You know, it's so I decided that I would restrict my activities on Twitter to people 
doing science mm-hmm. and not just biology. I, you know, I kind of follow, I follow people, uh, astrophysicists and uh, people like that. And I follow squid scientists and mm-hmm. fish, you know, fish people and, mm-hmm. so I, and bird people. So I kind of, that's all I do. And so my Twitter is just basically channeled into science. I just call it science Twitter as does you and everybody else. Which that's just what we call it. So, but it's an interesting community, not just for the science. I, I've learned quite a bit about other aspects of, of science, uh, the human side of, of mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you can uh, speak to this, but one of the th- interesting things about it is just the the ongoing transformation of the sciences and maybe maybe all of academics, but of the sciences to be more inclusive Mm-hmm. and more equitable and more diverse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can hear from all kinds of voices on there. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I just got onto Twitter in, I think it was 2016, when Kirsten Hecht, um, or Hellbender Hecht on Twitter, created the Herpers hashtag, with capital H-E-R, you know, for women and who like to play with herps. And, um and all these people were, were saying, hey, you got to get on there for, you know, with this, you got you got to be on there. And so I've, I kind of peeked in and, you know, just had a couple of tweets and then mostly just lurked for a really long time. And similar to you, I mean, for me, I started out just following hurt people, you know, certain people I knew or other people that I was sort of coming across through them that that I didn't know. And then slowly that evolved. And, and now I follow a whole bunch of people. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think the one really cool thing, I mean, Obviously, I'm uh, a person of color and um, one of the very few in in conservation, you know, throughout my career. But I hadn't really delved into these issues. And there's a whole bunch of complexities <laughs> in, in that as I've kind of explored for myself, like, you know, all of that. But I, I started to recognize, especially as my career grew, um, that people were looking at me as a role model, as a as a person of color who had had some success in in this field, and um, and I hadn't thought of myself that way. And I think so through Twitter was a way that I could offer tips or advice or those kinds of things. But I, I think what was the really major thing for me is I learned a ton from other people in terms of their experiences, the types of struggles that people were having that either I could relate to or or in many cases couldn't relate to, but I understood that need, you know, for the additional inclusion inclusion and definitely have had, you know, many experiences where I felt excluded. And so Twitter, science Twitter in particular, I think they really, you know, in part because um, it is a bunch of scientists, you know, they were really kind of looking at this, these issues from a, a bit more of an analytical perspective and in a way that I found really useful, you know, I was able to just learn a lot and just kind of absorb and, you know, listen. And I think that's definitely made me better at the types of work that I've done, you know, since then in these realms. Um, First through PARC, we started a team, the Inclusivity, Equity and Diversity Task Team, which is now the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Task Team. (laughs) Um, And work that I did when I was at Conservation Science Partners, the the nonprofit I I worked at just before my current job. And it's, it's just the awareness is, has just really exponentially increased and the understanding of where and how people feel excluded, I think, has really kind of come to the fore. And the ways in which these exclusive or exclusionary tendencies or, or systems um, appear, I think a lot of folks hadn't even realized how something like the fee to take a GRE or to travel to your college of interest, how that was really exclusionary for people who either came from a less privileged um, background or if they just weren't exposed to this because their their own schools just weren't, you know, talking about kind of higher education or, or those kinds of things. And so just all the different types of opportunities that you may take for granted. A lot of people, I think, took for granted um, and and maybe are becoming more aware of now. Well, I, I certainly took a lot of that for granted. And about the same time as you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I had some conversations with some of my female friends who also were biologists mm-hmm. in one form or another. And some scary and uh, some interesting stories uh, and some scary stories, you know, got, uh, related to me about aspects of being, you know, uh, 
uh, female in the, in the, in biology. And, uh, it was one of those things I had never really thought about or considered, mm-hmm. or I had never even really known that, it, you know, that, you know, it's just me being my, <laughs> my normal, uh, head scratching self. I didn't, I just hadn't really considered that, you know, that man, some people are really having a hard time right. working in the, in their field of choice. And as I paid more attention to it, I realized that the biological sciences and other sciences, there's just been a, 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 this infusion of, of women, of people of color, of the LGBTQ community mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that really come on board and they want to be heard and, and they have their uh, legitimate points of view and experiences that, that need to come out. And so the, the science Twitter is like, just like you, it's given me this opportunity to understand that, uh, that there's a lot going on that I, I didn't really experience, you know, myself. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it's been a great, it's not just me learning about, <laughs> you know, black holes from Katie Mack or squid from Sarah Mack or something like that. It's also about the experiences these people are having mm-hmm. uh, as they go through their careers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's, I think especially maybe in the last few months with um, some of the conversations that have been happening around um, issues of, of racial exclusion and equity and et cetera, that um, I think it's becoming even more apparent that there's, you know, all of that that women experience is double or triple or more, you know, for people of color um, and especially women of color. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel really fortunate in that I didn't have all of those types of experiences in some of the ways that I know some of my colleagues have. And, you know, I'm understanding some of those reasons, but I'm still kind of, you know, kind of wrestling with, with all of that, but also recognizing that now that I do have, you know, maybe a little bit of a platform, I have an opportunity to, to lift other people. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many little things that, that people don't think about. And I know some people don't like this word, but um, it's a real privilege to not ever have to think about these things, you know, to not ever have felt uncomfortable in a situation, you know, where people are are making a joke that is racial in nature or that are um, talking about some sort of experience that they had that you never had because you just didn't have, you know, the resources or or even just the basic ways of living that, you know, folks in the... LGBTQ community um, haven't had as many of of those opportunities, you know, just because of the belief systems in in certain places or the the lack of openness in many academic and and corporate cultures, you know, that um, prevent people from sort of being fully who they are. And it's, yeah, so it's, it's just been, it's been a journey for me that I'm still on, you know, and learning and understanding and trying to make sure that I'm part of the solution and yeah. figuring out where my spheres of influence are to, you know, kind of break some of the systems that are out there that um, have perpetuated this stuff. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, improvement is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a good thing. Agree. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And uh, on Twitter, your I love your handle on Twitter, which is totally T-O-A-D-A-L-L-Y, <laughs> totally Priya, which I think was pretty cool. And that comes from your undying love of toes yes it does i have to give credit to uh taylor west i think that's her name taylor west she's this awesome snake biologist um yes woman on on twitter and as i was leaving my my handle originally was that park priya p-a-r-c for partners in amphibian and reptile conservation and as i was leaving park i was like well oh gosh, I guess I'm going to have to change this handle. What am I going to be? And, you know, all sorts of different toad things were being thrown around. And then she, she came up with totally Priya and I was like, oh man, <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. but yeah, I do. Toads have a very special place in my heart. And occasionally you throw down a toad off. So <laughs> there has been, there have been some toad offs. Um, there's been some toad therapy sessions, uh, on Twitter. Um, if you look up that hashtag, you'll find some fun stuff, but yeah, I just, I can't say that I'm a complete expert on toads. Um, I just, I just like them. I just think they're just the cutest, funniest little critters. And yeah, I just, I just don't know how anybody can't love a toad. <laughs> oh, you may not be an expert, but did you not go on the Ologies podcast? <laughs> I did. And talk about toads? I did. I have a Boofology episode, um, which was a super fun thing to do. Yeah, that was a 
That was a, you know, again, just completely through Twitter, Allie Ward, who's the host of, of that podcast, which is a, she's such a fantastic host, just great little bits of comedy and asides in there that I encourage anybody who hasn't listened to that podcast to, to check it out. Yeah. She just approached me on Twitter and she said, you know, it was after one of these, you know, where I was probably tweeting out a lot of toads or having or retweeting a bunch of toads. And she said, are you a toad expert? And would that be called a bufologist? And would you like to be on the show? And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, I don't know if I'm an expert, but I will learn everything I can. If I, well, if I, I, I have to. to tell you, you know, you've arrived when you've been on ologies. If you've been a guest on the ologies podcast, you are something. So. Well, I don't know if I, if I was then, but it definitely increased my my followers, you know, on both Twitter and, and Instagram, um, and still yeah. does, you know, like I'll just randomly get, you know, a few new followers here and there, but yeah. So I think I, I didn't have a ton of followers and, and I still don't have a ton, but I have a, a good, you know, amount on, on Twitter, especially. And that was a big part of it is just, you know, people that kind of found me through there. So, um, so yeah, that was pretty cool. I like the ologies podcast. And I, I'd listen for the podcast, but I also just enjoy not just the all the guest part, but also the it's very humorous and I like the way it's put together. So yeah, yeah, it's a it's a fun setup the way she does it. That was a really fun, you know, unexpected outcome of being on Twitter. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, and here's another one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so definitely. I mean, I I think there's I've had several other related types of opportunities, you know, like being asked to speak in um, conferences or, you know, to for graduate seminars or something like that at different universities because of just the connections on Twitter. And, and uh, I just am I'm really like humbled by that. And it's, you know, like I was saying before, it's just like, how, you know, when did I get to be that person, you know, that people are looking for, <laughs> you know, I, um, it still amazes me, you know, I think, uh, and especially having an eight-year-old daughter who keeps me quite humble, um, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. uh, it's pretty cool to know. Now, does she have any interest in wildlife? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She and I go out as much as we can, you know, looking for critters. Probably we lived in the foothills when she was first born. And she's probably seen more black bear and elk and mule deer than most people will ever see in their lifetime, you know, and, um, but we've also, you know, gone out looking for, um, garter snakes. I have this great picture of, of me showing her, her first garter snake, which was maybe like a year and a half or two. And she was a stoic kid. So she didn't smile a whole lot in the first place, but the look on her face, you know, everybody just comments like, Oh, she's just not so sure about that snake, you know? And I don't really think that was necessarily the case, but it does make for a good story. But then you see these pictures I have of her recently and one just from the spring where actually I went out herping with Andrew Dubois and a couple of other uh, folks with her. And um, we found this beautiful plains garter snake. And, you know, I, I happened to be near it and I, I, you know, I grabbed it and then she was like, can I hold it? Can I hold it? And I was like, of course, you know, and, and, but that's the, been the way that she's been, you know, for several years now. So whenever we see a snake, uh, which is typically around here, a garter snake, um, you know, she wants to pick it up and she's definitely seen some rattlesnakes as well and understands to keep their distance, keep her distance. And one of my favorite stories is she was in a, an outdoor camp. This was a couple of years ago. Um, and one of the days they were just hiking and, uh, one of the camp counselors saw a snake, you know, across the trail and was like, okay, everybody stand back. And she's like, here, let me, you guys just wait, let me go look. And she goes, and she, she went up to the snake and she's like, oh, it's a bull snake, nothing to worry about. But the, the counselors didn't trust her, you know, didn't think, you know, they, they weren't sure, you know, so they were just like, no, 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 you got to keep your distance, stay back. And, and I, you know, I had to tell her later on, like, you know, I know you, I know you probably did know, but, you know, you just have to be extra safe. You got to keep your distance. You got to show every, all the other kids, you know, that it's better to just stay, keep your distance and stay away. And, and, uh, yeah, so I still don't know for sure because the, the counselors didn't know for sure if it was a bull snake or a rattlesnake, but she was like, she was like, I know mommy, I saw the tail. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you, you know, she knew. Oh yeah. She's, I'm sure know. she did. <laughs> and well, so that's cool. So it sounds like, like you guys get out in, in the outdoors quite a bit then. We try to, when, yeah. When the, you, when you can. Yeah. Yeah. We try to. The one thing that is, is I have not been able to show her a toad yet. So that's kind of on the uh, agenda for, we did see ta toad tadpoles, but she hasn't seen like a big old 
juicy adult. And so I really wanted her to see that. Um, <laughs> there was where we were visiting family out East, um, when she was again, like a year and a half or two. And we did find an American toad out there and showed it to her. And I, there's a picture somewhere of her looking at this toad, but she doesn't remember, you know, of course. And so I, sure. I definitely need to get her, get her to find it, you know, cause, um, that's my only thing about being here in Colorado. I mean, there's a ton of amazing reptiles. And in fact, she and I were going to go on that Otero trip, by the way. But just a couple of different things happened at the last minute. And we ended up having to cancel our plans. But one of these days, I'm going to take oh, her on. I'm sorry to miss you. Yeah, that would have been fun. But yeah, one of these days, I'm going to take her on one of the Colorado Park field trips. and Or, you know, several of them, I should say. And get her out to, to look at more critters. But yeah. I've seen a few things. And so that's been fun. Cool. So um, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's about time for me to wrap this one up. Sure. I, I appreciate you coming back on the show <laughs> and I appreciate you working with me through our various internet <laughs> issues. Um, yeah. That dang old internet. Uh, I know. So uh, I appreciate you coming and talking to us. And I, I'm just pleased this punch to talk about park and conservation uh, efforts and um, the Recovering Wildlife Act and all that stuff is just very interesting to me. And I hope it's interesting to our listeners as well, because um, I hope so too. this stuff is important to the herbs we love. So, yeah. Uh, so appreciate you coming on and uh, hopefully I'll see you again soon sometime. Yeah, I hope so too. You know, one of these days I need to take one of the Pingleton cage trips too. So there you go. <laughs> I'd love to do that. It's definitely on my oh. my list. So we'd love to have you. <laughs> we can uh, we can show you a few cool oh, toads. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Or two. <laughs> I'm well, yeah. Well, thank okay. you so much. I really appreciate you. You know, thinking of me and inviting me. And yeah, like you said, I, I hope some people find it interesting. I know it's not as cool as like you know Pete Moody and all his adventures, but. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> You know. Very few things are as cool as Mr. Pete Mooney. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank and uh, we'll talk to you again sometime. All right. Take care, Mike. Thanks. That's it for episode 17. I want to thank my guest, Priya Nanjapa for coming on the show and for hanging in there in spite of the technical difficulties. Thanks, Priya. I really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to the next one. Hopefully it's in person and maybe there'll be toads involved. Be sure to check out the show notes, everyone, for links to information on the Recovering America's Wildlife Act and to Priya's Ologies episode. And folks, thank you all very much for the emails and messages. Now, I say this every week, but I really mean it. Uh, your feedback is useful and appreciated. Just a couple more things before I go. You can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at SoMuchPingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group. You can also email me directly at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, folks, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>